0: To love God is to believe in his Son. To believe is to receive the Holy Spirit. To receive the Holy Spirit is to be given the power to love. To abide in the Spirit is to share the love of Jesus and his Father. Our lectionary does not follow our national holidays. It follows the church year. But I think it's very fitting that on today, Mother's Day, we're going to be talking about love and family and meals. (laughs) Belief, the Holy Spirit, and love is the triangle that is drawn in our readings today. In each of our readings, we are given a vignette inside a larger story. But hearing these passages isolated from their context is a little bit like walking into a movie after it has begun. So let me tell you the rest of the story, help you get your bearings, and we'll figure out later what this all means. In the gospel passage, we come into the middle of Jesus' goodbye speech to his disciples, which he shared after the Last Supper, after Judas had crept away to do his evil deed. I think it is helpful to locate today's passage inside this speech so we can get the full picture of what abiding in Jesus' love truly means. Many have noted that in John's account of Jesus last night with his disciples, there is no account of the Last Supper. Some have even suggested that this means that John doesn't think that this account of a Last Supper is important. John? Really? John, the writer of the Gospel who is always inserting code words for the Eucharist throughout his Gospel? No, I prefer the interpretation of those who think that a John assumed his readers knew about the Lord's Supper. And that what he provides here in this last speech is the true meaning of the Last Supper. Theologians and Bible scholars have a fancy word for this last speech. They call it Jesus's farewell discourse. They do this because a farewell discourse given by a rabbi or a teacher to his followers before an expected death was common in the time of Jesus. In a farewell discourse, the teacher always shows the concern that he has for those who are going to be left behind. Often there is an exhortation to obey all that the teacher has taught them. And in some cases, the departing person passes his spirit on to his followers. In Jesus' farewell discourse, many of these same elements appear. Jesus has left the crowds aside and is now focusing attention and love upon those who have shared his life with him most intimately, his disciples. He recognizes that his hour of glorification, his hour of death, is upon him, and he knows that he must prepare his disciples for what is to come. It is important to note that he waits until after Judas has left to share his last words, for they are only for those that he knows truly love him. He encourages his disciples and comforts them, He urges them to be obedient and promises them that he is not abandoning them because a spirit, a helper, will soon indwell them. They will not be left as orphans because they will share a fellowship that will last forever. But before Jesus promises this spirit, he gives a condition. So Jesus first says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, he who will dwell with you and will be in you. So the Spirit's gift is predicated by this phrase, if you love me. This gift, then, is an outgrowth of the loving relationship between Jesus and the Father and Jesus and his disciples. It is not an entitlement. When the Spirit comes, in fact, they will enjoy even greater intimacy than they have known with Jesus on earth. For in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This intimacy will free Jesus' followers to truly love each other, to keep Jesus' word to love one another. For if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. And then Jesus offers the disciples the metaphor of the vine to help his disciples understand what this new relationship with him in the Spirit will look like. This abiding, this being at home with the Father, is like the branch which depends on the vine for its sustenance. Father Martin helped us understand the profundity of this metaphor last week. Without the Spirit, we can be of no use to God. Today's passage plainly continues this metaphor with its command to abide. He wants to make sure that the disciples, who we know at some time appear to be a bit dim, that this picture of the vine and the branches is the key to help us grasp the importance Of abiding in his love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. John's Gospel has reiterated over and over that Jesus is truly dependent on his Father for everything. He declares that the Father has been the source of all the love he has shown during his earthly sojourn. His love for the wounded, for the sick, for those damaged by sin, for his disciples, his friends. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus has opened up the possibility that some may neglect the wonderful gift of intimacy and love that he is promising in the coming of the Helper. One can only enjoy that intimacy When one abides in it, abiding, believing, and obeying is what precedes loving one another. We can only grow and bear fruit if we live a life utterly dependent upon the Spirit's presence in our life. Jesus Jesus likens this to his relationship to the Father, but he also likens it to friendship. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. The relationship is no longer one of servant and master, but one of friend Because friends share intimate knowledge with each other, and Jesus is promising his disciples that intimate knowledge of love that he shares with his Father. And friends lay down their life for each other. When these disciples witness the complete sacrifice that Jesus makes for them, even in that deepest moment of despair, perhaps then they also realized how much Jesus truly did love them. And what a privilege to be called a friend of God. Jesus' disciples knew that thus far, only Abraham and Moses had been granted that title. And Jesus wants his disciples to experience joy. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This fullest joy is a supernatural joy, the joy that is the gift of the Spirit. Joy is the fruit of abiding in his love, just as the fruit of the vine is wine that gladdens the heart. As promised when Jesus went away on the day of his passion and came back again on the day of his resurrection, he went away again, finally, on Ascension Day to take his heavenly throne, so that as he promised, the Spirit does come, it is poured out in Jerusalem on Pentecost on the Jews and later in Samaria on the Samaritans. With that outpouring comes power, power to speak the gospel in boldness. But with the Spirit's coming, so also comes an outpouring of love. Love indeed is what characterized that early Christian community. We are told that these Spirit-filled followers of Jesus devoted themselves to fellowship, to the caring of each other such that they shared all in common, sold their possessions, and gave to those in need. And they broke bread together, for the sharing of meals in that culture signified the most intimate friendship. But there were those still outside this fellowship. There may have been believing Gentiles among them, but as in the synagogue, those believing Gentiles were observers. They were not members of the community. They had not yet been invited into that circle, that communion of love. So we come today to our passage in Acts. We have come into the story at its climax, when Peter preached to Cornelius and his family, and before he can finish, the Spirit is poured out in a dramatically new way. This adventure for Peter had begun the day before. While praying at the sixth hour, the Holy Spirit interrupted him, and he received a vision— He was told to kill and eat unclean foods. While pondering what this vision could possibly have meant, another interruption came in the form of three men that were standing at his door and knocking. Maybe he didn't even hear them the first time they knocked. Yes, God does sometimes interrupt our lives with odd circumstances, which in turn help us figure out what he is trying to tell us. And in this case, Peter realized God wanted him to go to the house of a Gentile, even worse, a Roman, even worse, a Roman centurion, and preach the gospel. It turned out that what Peter was to accept as clean, because it was part of God's creation, was more than food. So the next day he leaves for Joppa with Cornelius' servants. Funny things happen when we pray. God has given us a way to abide with him, to speak to him, to love him, and to receive back his love. Jesus, or Peter and Cornelius both took that time. They prayed at fixed hours. Cornelius' prayers, too, were interrupted, but not by a vision, but by a messenger in bright clothing who told him to send for a man named Simon, who was also called Peter. After hearing Cornelius' story of the divine appointment, which I think at that point Peter was pretty happy he'd kept, the scripture says that Peter opened his mouth, perhaps in utter amazement. It was a moment of pure epiphany for Peter. This is what the prophecies from their Jewish Jewish scriptures meant. God really did mean to save nations and all the different kinds of people residing in them. So he began to preach to them, and this is where we enter the story today. Peter began to tell them about Jesus, the man from Nazareth that had been anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, who was crucified, put to death, and who rose again. But wait, before Peter can even finish this elegant sermon, the Holy Spirit comes upon the people in the room. Once again, the Holy Spirit interrupts Peter and ravishes those present with his love and his power. They began speaking in tongues and extolling God, and Peter says, Bring the water. How can we withhold baptism? How can we ignore this powerful witness of the Holy Spirit? And so that day, it was a new beginning. They call it the Gentile Pentecost. Until this day, although Peter had preached it at Pentecost, the prophecy of Joel too had not been completely fulfilled, for that day in Joppa for the first time, God's spirit now falls on all flesh, men and women, sons and daughters, old men who dream, young men who receive visions like Peter's, all flesh, which even includes Gentiles, those not born of the clan of Israel. And so Jesus, er, and so Peter stays and he eats with his new family. He realizes that this circle of love that Jesus had promised, this fellowship of the Holy Spirit, has now been widened. A few days later, Peter is called to Jerusalem to explain himself. Word has reached the elders there that Peter had not only preached, but eaten with the uncircumcised. So Peter retold them the whole amazing story, ending it by asking this question of those present. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gives to us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Who was I, Peter asked, to not love those who were given the same gift that we were promised in that upper room? Peter knows the circle of love must be expanded to those who once stood outside it. A gift, he called it. Given, he said, to those who believe, to those who love, to those who call Jesus Lord and their friend. The passage in 1 John brings Acts and John together for us. There's so much in these five verses. 1 John affirms that those who believe that Jesus and the Father are one will be reborn, reborn in the Spirit who showers upon each follower the love of Jesus and his Father. It is a ravishing love. And John says, if we love Jesus, we will bear fruit because we will have the help of the Spirit. Yes, we will gladly keep his commandments, but the commandments of a friend to a friend are not burdensome. And what is the key? to abiding victoriously over the world and its temptation? Faith. Only he believes in Christ will overcome. And then we are given this image. Jesus Christ is the one who came by water and blood. It is at once a sacramental and an incarnational image. Jesus was fully human, so he had a body composed of water and blood like any other human being. On the cross, Jesus bled to death and his body was pierced so that the bystanders could see both water and blood flowing from his side and therefore know he had truly died. But this is also a sacramental image. Jesus Jesus gave us two sacraments, the baptism of water and the Eucharist, where he invites us to drink his blood and eat his body. And the Spirit is the one who brings to us Jesus in those sacraments. Once again, John has put a code phase regarding the sacraments. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So what does this all mean for us? I love the way the lectionary is preparing us for Ascension Day and Pentecost soon to follow but I also love the way it looks back to the night of the Last Supper. You knew I was getting to this. I couldn't get up and preach a sermon without talking about the Eucharist. It is hard to understand how to abide in Christ. We abide in Christ first through faith. But even that first step of faith is a gift of the Spirit. In salvation, we respond to the Spirit's invitation to enter into a relationship of love. But with that first step at least the way it is preached in Acts, there is a call for repentance. And what is repentance other than laying down our lives, our life in the flesh, and answering a call to the commitment of friendship? Our response of faith is met with the gift of the Spirit, of rebirth. We are born again, not by water, but by the Spirit. We are joined to Christ, and in that union, we enjoy his fellowship with the Father And the Holy Spirit, we abide. To abide each day is to live out that faithful discipleship. To abide means to choose to receive the help of the Spirit. We know that we are to replicate with each other the love that Jesus and his Father have for each other. And we know we do that by living a life as Jesus did. By living a life full of the Holy Spirit. Asking the Holy Spirit to warm our hearts. But we are flesh and blood, just as John reminds us that Jesus is. So we have been given a meal, that most intimate sign of friendship with Jesus, a meal of fellowship, a meal where we abide with Jesus and with each other. Just as the Holy Spirit is the one who unites us to the love of Christ and the Father, the Spirit is the one who joins these communion elements, bread and wine, with the reality of feeding on Christ's flesh and blood. In a few moments, we will pray in our liturgy, and I want you to notice when you pray these words. Send your spirit on us now, that by these gifts we may feed on Christ with opened hearts on fire. On fire with love. We abide with Christ when we abide and receive this Eucharistic meal. And the gift of abiding love is actually intensified in the Eucharist because of its accommodation to our human senses. We can understand taking food as sustenance, but here it is spiritual sustenance because we know that when we take Jesus' body and blood into our lives, into our bodies, it is a sign that he truly does abide in us, and just as we enjoy food and are gladdened by wine, we experience the joy he has promised. For in the Eucharist, we receive Christ himself, so that he may continue his work of transforming us evermore into the image of the love of he and his Father. In the Lord's Supper, that true abiding, that true communion between each of us, together, and with Christ takes place so that spiritually strengthened and nourished, we can go out and love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.